0: My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio.
1: We really believe that under capitalism, we're very individualized and told, you know, only look after yourself and nobody cares about you there's a lot of harm in that approach and then of course there's just like the violence and the harm that capitalism does care is i think really kind of the antidote to that
0: that's the voice of carrie claire neal she's today's guest on talking radical radio this show brings you grassroots voices from across canada We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. In 1964, Oxfam Canada set up an office in St. John's, Newfoundland. Across the many decades of Oxfam's presence in St. John's, the affiliated chapter of active volunteers worked, as Oxfam does, on important global issues, at least some of the time tying them to local issues. A few decades into that time, some members of the chapter decided to think big, bought a building, and sold it to the global Oxfam organization for a dollar, on the condition that if Oxfam ever pulled out, the building would be returned for the same price to a local organization doing similar work. Under Prime Minister Stephen Harper's conservative federal government, things changed. Organizations like Oxfam faced significant funding cuts and major new restrictions on the advocacy work they were allowed to do, and one consequence of this was the decision by Oxfam to close their office in St. John's. Local activists associated with Oxfam were not content to just fade away, however. They formed a new organization, and not just any organization, but a cooperative. Co-ops are pretty common in general in the Canadian context, but it's rarer to see one focused on activism and social justice. According to Claire Neal, they made this decision because of their understanding of co-ops as democratic, transparent, and accountable, and because of the considerations for justice and equity built into the seven principles of the co-op movement. They called the organization Social Justice Co-op NL, and Carrie Claire Neal is its co-chair. The new group entered into negotiations with Oxfam to get the building back. Unfortunately, during that process, the building burned down. But, thankfully, the organization was able to get a chunk of the insurance money. They were a purely volunteer outfit at that time, so while they regularly held events and workshops, overall their capacity was quite limited. They had visions of using the insurance money as a starting point for buying another building, but they were never able to put together the sort of major initiative that would have required. Then, in 2018, they decided to take a different approach they used some of the money to hire a part-time permanent staff person to coordinate volunteers, help with organizing events, and fundraise. From that moment on, the organization flourished and has been able to sustain itself and maintain its staff through its fundraising efforts. And this dependence on fundraising provides an additional form of direct accountability to members while freeing the co-op from the kind of externally imposed constraints on grassroots political work that come with dependence on grant funding from governments or foundations. Much of the co-op's work begins as ideas among members, and the staff and board serve as resource, support, and infrastructure to help members turn those ideas into action. Having staff support enables much more activity among members in both amount and breadth than would otherwise be possible. The co-op's many working groups and projects, the kinds of actions they take, and the politics informing all of this have always been very eclectic. One strand of their work has flowed from concern about the climate crisis, but they've done lots of other things, too. Active working groups at the moment include One Challenging Car Culture, a group that focuses on corresponding with prisoners, a 2SLGBTQIA mutual aid pod, a zero-waste group, and an anti-capitalist reading group. They've also been active in supporting the youth climate strikes, and in working with Climate Action NL and the Workers' Action Network NL, They organized a Rights of the Atlantic Ocean fundraiser, and they've been involved in supporting indigenous land defense efforts and in opposing offshore fossil fuel extraction. An important development for the co-op was the elaboration of a more detailed unifying vision for their work, embracing the organization's breadth while giving it a greater coherence. Called the Revolution of Care Manifesto, it sets out a sort of pluralist anti capitalism informed by indigenous and other anti racist feminisms that, as the name suggests, places care at the center of the many and varied ways it envisions working for a better world. I speak with Carrie Clare Neal about the work of the Social Justice Co op NL.
1: My name is Carrie Clare Neal, and I am co chair for the Social Justice Cooperative, Newfoundland Labrador. We are a nonprofit incorporated cooperative that advocates for social and environmental justice in our province. I grew up in a small town here on the island of Newfoundland with a single mom. So we grew up in, I wouldn't say poverty, but like low income, definitely saw like the struggles she faced. I think I first got interested in social justice in high school, learning about the global injustices through like Amnesty International. And then in university, I studied economics for my undergrad and then sociology in my master's. I particularly looked at the experience of migrant workers here in Canada, especially like temporary foreign workers through organizing with different organizations. I got more interested in local advocacy, feeling like. Well, I know the most about this place and there are a lot of issues here. So I thought it would be best to kind of turn my attention to what I can do like meaningfully for my community. Oxfam chapter first started here back in the 70s and some local organizers got second mortgages on their homes and invested in buying a building for their local Oxfam chapter. And they were really interested in the connections between global inequality and local inequality. And how can we help people make the connections between what's happening here to what's happening globally. And then, unfortunately, under Harper, there were some changes made to, like, what kind of political advocacy nonprofits can do here in Canada. And so that really impacted Oxfam. And I understand, like, they lost some funding. And this building that had been bought by organizers here in the 90s was given to Oxfam globally for like a dollar with the agreement that if Oxfam pulled out of this region, that they would give it to a like-minded organization for a dollar. And so when they did pull out in the late 2000s, there was this process about like, well, what are you going to do with the building? And the social justice cooperative formed by people who were involved in Oxfam to like take over that space. But unfortunately, during the negotiations, the building actually burned down. The organization was able to get some of the insurance claim that came out of it. And so that's been a really helpful resource for us because it has allowed us to have some seed funding that's not from government and really allowed us to start a really grassroots member based fundraising plan. We do apply for grants every now and then, but our core funding, our staff funding, all comes from small monthly donors, kind of like the union model. And that allows us to be like very fiercely independent, and we're like very grateful for the people who came before us, who allowed us to have that seed funding, and the people who continue to contribute to our organization.
0: Why did the founders decide to make the organization a cooperative as opposed to the other organizational forms they could have chosen?
1: We did have someone involved in the organization who was also involved in the Klein Labdoor Federation of Cooperatives. And they really believed that a cooperative model is just a much more democratic way of organizing. We have really transparent ways of like who gets elected to the board and how. It's really clear in our bylaws what ways that our members can hold the organization accountable. And, you know, there are these seven cooperative principles that all cooperatives are supposed to abide by, and they do consider, like, equity. The cooperative model is just a more democratic way of organizing.
0: How did the group turn this opportunity and this seed funding into a functioning organization?
1: It was a bit of a challenge at first because we had this $50,000 from the insurance claim, and there was a lot of interest at first in just, like, buying another building. But it was all volunteers doing the work and, you know, a lot of us are doing it on the side of our desk. And for many years, there were events happening here and there and different workshops, but it was hard to generate enough capacity to really take on a large project like buying a building. In 2018, the organization hadn't been doing much, but it was sitting on this money, and they decided instead of trying to take on this very large project buying a building, let's hire a staff person to help coordinate volunteers to help organize some actions so that we can at least use this money to have some kind of like impact in the community. And I think that staff was really important to the success that we have today because having even just one part-time but permanent staff has been so helpful in having like a main person that our volunteers can come to, someone who is keeping track of all the different projects that we do, and is kind of a thorough line in our work. They have that kind of organizational history, and they can keep an eye and do like kind of the boring administration work that is needed. So yeah, that's been, I think, a really important part of our success.
0: Talk more about your approach to fundraising.
1: Our main fundraising has been for like the monthly donor model. A lot of our donors just give $5 a month, but currently we're making like $2,000 a month during that method from about a 100 different monthly donors. That is a really important fundraising model because it keeps us accountable to our members, to the people who are involved. And I think like the union model really shows, you know, we have a responsibility to this work. It shares the ownership of it. And hopefully makes people feel like they're a really important part of it. And it's been a big problem here in our province, and I would say probably across the country, where nonprofits who rely a lot on provincial government funding or federal funding are scared or hesitant to criticize the government because they're worried that that's going to impact their funding. So by really focusing on the people who believe in our work, we have, I think, been able to be a bit more radical and say things that other groups haven't or can't. So that's been really important.
0: Give an overview of the different kinds of grassroots work that the organization does, and then we can dive into some in more detail.
1: We take being a grassroots organization very seriously. So we're very much like a bottom-up organization. So when volunteers come to us with a project, we have a volunteer coordinator who helps support them. So instead of the board deciding like what projects we're going to come up with, it's very member driven. We're broadly concerned, I would say, about climate change, but it's a very complicated issue. So there's a lot of different ways that we like organize around it. Some of our active teams, for example, where there's one about like challenging car culture and that team is very much based in like our capital city. It's a big problem here in St. John's. We don't have clear sidewalks in the winter. Like how do we help people get around without a car? And we also have a zero waste team that recently did like a brand audit to look at who is producing the plastic or companies and thinking through like how do we make those companies responsible for the plastic and the garbage that they're creating. We also have like a 2S LGBTQIA plus mutual aid pod. They receive some funding again, mostly through grassroots sponsors and they organize projects for queer people, but they also share financial resources with people who are struggling. We recently started a prison pen pal project. It's been quite successful. We've started writing letters and talking to people in prisons uh, and help them kind of get through that. And we've also started a Rights of the Atlantic Ocean fundraiser, kind of building off some of the environmental rights campaigns that we're seeing in the U.S. and around the world. We have an anti-capitalist book club that meets every week. And we're also involved in a group called Climate Action NL that is trying to help people like understand climate change and build capacity around that. We've done like different projects. So we've like resisted the Beta Nord oil project that's happening in the Atlantic Ocean. We've worked with Fridays for Futures to do climate strikes, as well as Indigenous activists here in the province to do solidarity with like the Wet'suwet'en. Land Back Fest is something that we did last summer. We've also been working with the Worker Action Network. We did like a May Day event on May 1st to talk about like workers' rights. So, yeah, we have our fingers in a lot of different pots.
0: How over the years have you reached out to people and drawn them into the activity of the organization?
1: We really believe it's important to have fun in the movement. Like everyone is so stressed out and the things that we're reading, you know, about the climate apocalypse that we're all living through, I think can be really draining. And it's so easy to just tap out and tune out. So one really important piece of our work, I think, is that we are creating social spaces for people to come together and get to know each other. We started out with a event. It used to be called Green New Drinks, a play on the Green New Deal that was happening a few years ago. And it was just a monthly social where you would meet at a bar and have a few speakers, just bringing people together to talk about different issues. It has since evolved. We now call it socials for justice. We have it in a sober space that's wheelchair accessible. We have ASL. So we've incorporated more inclusive elements to it. We have food and it has been a really helpful way. Just kind of getting people to dip their toes into the organization and see what we're about, get to meet us. Of course, with the pandemic, we really had to shift to online meetings. And we continue to do that because we found it more accessible for a lot of reasons. We try to do like online socials as well. We'll watch a film together or we'll play this online game. We also try to make our meetings public and accessible. So, like, a lot of our teams have monthly meetings. So, it's really easy to jump in wherever. And our staff, for example, has a lunch that they host every week. So, if people want to come talk about a specific project or get help with something, they can connect with her. So, we try to make ourselves like really accessible for the public to find us and to get involved.
0: How do things typically go when a member approaches you and says, hey, I have this idea for an action or a working group?
1: Generally, if we know like, oh, this would work well with this team, then we'll invite them to like that meeting to find other people who might be interested or our staff will meet them and they'll figure out what kind of logistics are involved, make social media posts, try and get other people involved and start having like meetings with that person to like make their project come to life and that's been very successful for us because we find there are people who are really passionate and have great ideas and want to do stuff and then there are people who kind of are happy to support that and are excited by these ideas so we try to create spaces for people to get involved and talk about it really early we also try to invite partners from the community who might be doing similar work That's a big part of our work, too, is constantly trying to connect with, like, who else is organizing. Because for us, it's really not important about, like, taking ownership or getting recognition. It's just, like, how do we make the work happen and how can we do it better together?
0: Are there any of the co-op's projects or teams that you individually have been particularly involved in?
1: Yeah, I started the book club a couple years ago. After I did my master's, I kind of missed that coming together to read and to learn and to discuss. And that's been a really important space for me to keep reading theory and to better understand what's happening around us and how can we affect change. I've since actually been able to hand that off to another volunteer who's taken it over, which is great to see that we can have that kind of turnover. I was also involved in the food sovereignty action team that kind of went dormant because I just wasn't able to organize it and that's also a theme that we've had projects will come and go based on capacity and interest and we just kind of have to go with the flow we're constantly saying that like over over capacity that's a big issue like we would like to hire more people to help us organize because I think if we could our movement would absolutely grow but yeah a lot of us are volunteers and our capacity flows and ebbs and we kind of have to just go with that
0: And go into a bit more detail about a couple of the projects or teams or working groups that are particularly active these days.
1: I would say the Challenging Car Culture Coalition has been like our most active. They've been together for a few years. As I said, they were doing a lot of advocacy around sidewalk snow clearing, and we have had some success with the city with that. One of our volunteers actually ran for city council last year, and we did as an organization support her in that campaign. Unfortunately, she like did not win, but it was a really great opportunity to learn how to canvas and how a political campaign is run and to like get people involved. I love knocking on people's doors, talking about politics. That was a really great offshoot of that team. They're kind of associated with Critical Mass, who organize these group bike rides every month to like take over the road and really show that there are cyclists in this city and they want to share the roads. And that team of course is very heavily involved in like disability justice because a big piece of challenging car culture is that not everyone can drive and that's so inaccessible and how if we're making a car centric city how many people are being pushed out and are not being able to like use the space. We have held some like rallies at the city hall to show our support for sidewalks no clearing. There's been a social media campaign. We've also started a survey you can find on our website. We are trying to get a sense of where people have been hit by cars or near hits to show where things are really dangerous. And maybe this is an area where we like definitely need to make sure that there's no clearing. There's a lot of people walking through and there's a lot of accidents happening. Um, and really trying to talk about how dangerous cars are and how we've kind of normalized that. We also have an event coming up pretty soon, a snowy sidewalk open mic, where people are going to be invited to come and share their experiences walking around the city in the winter. Another team that's recent really active has been the Prison Penpal Project. We had a volunteer reach out and was really keen on this. And we helped them organize meetings. We shared them through our networks. And they put out flyers in the different prisons in our province. And people were invited to like write to us. I think we have about like ten people writing back and forth, which yeah, it only started in the summer and I think it's a really great start. We've been talking, I guess, a lot about prison and police abolition. And I think this is a helpful start for getting us to understand the issues that people are experiencing when they're in prison and how they end up there and how can we support them? Cause I think a lot of the prison industrial complex, you know, there's a lot of shame in that and people feel like, you know, they deserve to be punished or like if they're criminals, but I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think putting a human face to the experiences of people that are put away you know, specifically so that we can't see what's happening, I think is really powerful. I will also give a shout out to our book club. I think it's really amazing space. We meet online. We read about 50 pages a week. So we try to keep it short and accessible. And we switch between like books and webinars or audio, like podcasts to also make it more accessible. And I do think that reading is revolutionary. Like I read a lot like on Twitter, for example, but like a lot of ideas really can't be distilled into a single tweet. I think it's so important to read histories and to read what other people have done and their successes and their failures. There's so much resistance that's happened against capitalism that we can learn from. I would say one thing about the co-op is we're not socialists or communists or anarchists or like liberal Democrats. Like we're a real melange of everyone. We are explicitly anti-capitalist, but I think it's important that we keep the umbrella open. But the book club has been a great space for thinking through those different theories of change and what works and what doesn't. For example, one of those book club members started a transformative justice working group to think through, well, if we were to have police and prison abolition, how do we manage conflict within our communities? And I think conflict is something that we've lost a lot of those skills. I don't think we have great conflict resolution skills. You know, some people argue that we outsource them to the police and we used to be better at managing community dynamics and we've lost our responsibility to each other. And how do we get that back? And what does it look like to be caring, but holding each other accountable?
0: What is the Revolution of Care Manifesto and how did it come to be?
1: We had in our bylaws some objectives and goals for the organization, but we felt like we needed to really address the elephant in the room, which I think is capitalism, and come up with a vision that talks about how are we going to resist this really oppressive and exploitative economic system that we're operating under. And so a few people met and put together ideas for a draft, and then it was a few months of meetings before we finalized it. The piece about care, I think, is really important to it. We really believe that under capitalism, we're very individualized and told, you know, only look after yourself and nobody cares about you. There's a lot of harm in that approach. A lot of people feel very lonely. Of course, a lot of people are depressed and anxious. Our suicide rate is quite high. And then, of course, there's just like the violence and the harm that capitalism does by putting us in prison, by making us homeless if we don't have a job, by forcing us to move away from our social safety nets, our families to seek employment so that we don't end up on the streets. And then, of course, even in the jobs, there's a lot of risk depending on where you work. Care is, I think, really kind of the antidote to that. How can we be kind and compassionate to each other? and? Build spaces where you're going to feel accepted and you're going to feel taken care of. And how can we as a community show care to each other and take responsibility for each other? Because I think that's going to be a really important part in resisting that individualism and thinking more about us as a collective. I think in this individualized approach, it can also feel really like, why would I get involved in an advocacy organization because i'm just one person and the systems that we're up against are huge but if we are thinking of ourselves as a collective and recognizing that we're all parts of like a bigger organization and together we are strong then hopefully we can shift what's happening and still take care of each other but not in a way that's exploiting each other or oppressing each other and the land of course the land is really being harmed under capitalism and the resource extraction that's happening. So we also have to show like care for the land and the animals and recognize that we're just like a small piece of this big, beautiful earth and we have a responsibility to take care of it.
0: What is distinct about doing social and environmental justice work in Newfoundland as opposed to other places across the Canadian state?
1: One difference here is that we are an oil exporting province. There is a real push to support oil and gas. And when we were resisting the latest oil project, Beta Nort, our premier actually basically said, like, if you don't support oil and gas, you don't support this province. That is something that we've been trying to tie, of course, with the fishing industry and the cod moratorium. A lot of people here, especially in rural areas, were really dependent on the cod fishery for their food and for their income. And there was so much science showing that we were overfishing and there were a lot of advocates saying that we need to lower our extraction and unfortunately that was all ignored until it reached a breaking point and then I think like 30,000 people like lost their job overnight when the federal government finally decided to close the fishery. So we went through this process of extracting all of these resources in a really unsustainable way from our ocean. And now it feels like we're just doing that again with the oil and gas industry. And again, people are saying like, this is harmful. The scientists are against it. There's advocacy groups against it like ours. And yet we're being told it's important for the jobs and it's important for our economy. And it feels like a really short term mindset when we're trying to think about our long term future here on this planet. And so, yeah, I would say the oil sector has been a really unique and really difficult piece for us, because especially there are a lot of people in rural areas who feel like they don't have a lot of job options. They want to stay in their community and oil and gas helps them do that. So that's still something that we're struggling with trying to figure out ways that we can keep people in their communities without relying on an industry that's only going to give them jobs for a few more years. And again, people are going to, I think, be left unemployed when the industry inevitably ends.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Carrie Claire Neal of the Social Justice Co-op NL. To learn more about the organization, go to sjcnl.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.